Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today. In moments, Max Sawicki will talk about Republican ideas for overhauling the federal tax system. Not that they can ever agree on anything. And Vijay Prashad will offer an in-depth analysis of the Syrian disaster. First, taxes. Republicans control all three branches of government. They're full of ideas on how to make the federal tax system work better for corporations and rich people, but can they ever make them happen? Here's the Virginia-based economist and writer Max Sawicki. His recently launched blog, written with veteran political reporter Bob Dreyfus, is at thepopulist.buzz. First I learned there's a buzz domain. Max Sawicki. Welcome, Max. We've got a lot of uh, tax proposals floating around the Republican universe. I suppose the first question is, do any of them stand the slightest possibility of becoming a law, or are they just as a party too divided? There's always an appetite for tax cuts. Just as on the health care uh, issue, there was an appetite to hurt Obamacare some way or another. The problem is that we, when you get to something that's technical and complicated like this, uh, and there are competing underlying interests, then it could be difficult for them to agree on an actual tax cut. By them, I mean the Republican side. There was kind of an intra-Republican or intra-Wignut war around the first proposal that came down the pike, the so-called uh, border adjustment tax, which now seems to be dead. Uh, so I think it's uh, safe to expect there'll be similar uh, disputes around other proposals. Now, is that budget deal with the sequester mechanisms, all that stuff, is that still in effect? Does that constrain activity at all? Yeah, it could uh, constrain activity. They can't just move money around uh, willy-nilly the way they like. A lot of the details of this are lost on the people in charge now. <laughs> so they're on the learning curve as far as how to do the uh, awful things they have had in mind. But uh, so they're still getting up to speed on that side, too. Yeah, I've been wondering about that. I assume the, the congressional staff, or at least some people there, have the technical chops to write this sort of legislation. But does anybody in the White House or the Treasury at this point? A lot has been made out of the fact that uh, the president is way behind in terms of even nominating people for hundreds of appointments that would uh, provide uh, politically connected people that could begin to do some of what he's talked about. Now, of course, in the agencies, there's plenty of people that are completely adept in all the technical issues, but there needs to be some more, some stronger connect between them and uh, the, the top of the uh, pyramid in order for things to get done, because uh, otherwise you have uh, a very limited number of people who have actually been nominated and confirmed sitting over a sea of uh, not necessarily sympathetic people further down the chain and a lack of people in between to make the kind of connections that are necessary to get staff work and technical expertise up the chain to the uh, command post, so to speak. The other problem is that the command post is led by somebody that is pretty clueless on most any uh, substantive issue beyond uh, slogans that he's bloviating about. Well, you could have said the same about Reagan, but he managed to get a major tax overhaul done uh, very soon after taking office, then another one a few years later. I think Reagan was a scholar compared to this guy. The, as far as the agency staffing goes, I can understand they're wanting to starve uh, departments and agencies, I don't know, like labor or EPA for personnel because they hate the mission. They want them to do nothing. But uh, in the case of uh, a Treasury, uh, you would think that that's kind of important. But are they still la uh, dragging their feet on appointments there? Yeah, well, all across the board, they, they, they've been dragging their feet. The thing is, uh, they really need people in all the agencies to unwind policies that they don't like. And... They haven't done that either. So uh, what they're used to doing so far is issuing proclamations from the mountaintop and, and expecting them to uh, be adequate and have uh, the force that they want. But uh, you really do need people in between uh, the White House and the agencies, the sort of rank-and-file levels, to get things done, even if the things to be done are in the, the deconstructing uh, mode. If I'm remembering my Constitution correctly, revenue measures are supposed to originate in the House, right? Tax measures, yeah. So that would presumably give Paul Ryan some leverage in this process. What's, uh, what's uh, twinkling in his eye? The burden on Ryan is that within his caucus, there's a problem in getting them to agree on anything. We've already seen that because the original proposal they had for this border tax has already crashed and burned before it's even been uh, ventilated very much in public. 
So uh, their burden now is to try to uh, fall back to something else that everybody can buy into. One constraint on that, of course, it's easy to just cut revenues, but uh, then the question becomes how much force is behind the hysteria around the national debt. There's already been analysis of some of uh, Trump's uh, previous tax proposals, which found that they would lose in the, in the area of $7 trillion over the next 10 years and $20 trillion more over the following 10 years. So, of course, the, the Republicans' loyalty to, to debt reduction is certainly questionable, but uh, there may be some level at which, now that they really are going to be held responsible for everything that happens, I mean, how much of a debt constraint there will be on just uh, willy-nilly tax cut proposals, which don't offend anybody, remains to be seen how much of a constraint that could be. Yeah, what's happened to uh, the Pete Peterson and Bowles and Simpson uh, professional war rewards about the debt and deficit? Uh, they've been pretty quiet the last few years because the debt and deficit have been fairly tame. Uh, are they just lying in wait, or, or are they disarmed? I think they've been in perpetual uh, voice, but it's just that the attention they managed to get has waxed and waned over the years. Of course, under Obama, there was a uh, reduction in in debt and deficits relative to trend, and uh, certainly compared to the situation when he came in. Of course, we were in a recession. We're coming out of a recession for a good while as well. So they've uh, had they've been they've been more lower energy uh, in that kind of period. Now they're coming more to the fore in terms of uh, bird dogging new proposals that are coming out. So I, I think they've always been at the same sort of dull roar, but uh, sometimes they get more attention than other times. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate just uh, how tight fiscal policy has been since the initial stimulus of 2009-2010. It's, it's waned, and, uh, and fiscal policy, at least at the federal level, has been rather conservative uh, for the last several years, hasn't it? No, absolutely, yeah. We could have been doing a lot better in the labor market than we have. And, of course, my uh, friends at the Economic Policy Institute and the Center for Economic and Policy Research have been documenting that to a fairly well. So, yeah, there's no question. When you, the, the unemployment rate is a little bit of a distraction in this case, not because it's inaccurate or corrupt, but because it glosses over the stagnation in what's called the... Uh, employment population ratio among prime age workers, which you would expect to increase coming out of a recession, but and it has increased, uh, but not very much. And not, it certainly hasn't reached previous peaks, and there's really no good explanation why that ratio could not be as high now as it was in, say, the year 2000. Well, the, uh, the orthodox answer is the aging population will never get back to that level. I'm talking about prime age workers, though. When you, if, you, if you look at just the 21 to 54-year-olds, again, that, that ratio hasn't returned to its previous peak and by a significant number of percentage points, in my view, and there's no good reason for that. I mean, it's possible that there's more people bunched at the higher age bracket within that category, and that may have some impact. But in general, those people, you would expect to stay working and uh, not being labor force dropouts, which is what that ratio's failure to recover reflects. Yeah, I did a little silicon equivalent of back-of-the-envelope work on that and found that uh, something like half of it was a result of the aging population and half was the, uh, the result of stagnation. But uh, everybody does that, comes up with a different number. Is that half within the prime age group? Yeah, yeah, because you got well, more people in their 50s and fewer people in their 30s. But anyway, uh, let's just uh, look over a couple of these tax proposals. What is that border tax, uh, dead or not? It uh, attracted some interest. Well, I think the simplest summary is that it's a sales tax applied to imports plus a limited tax on what you might call above-normal corporate profits, not from exporting. In other words, if a firm sells into the U.S. above a, a certain sort of what's called a normal level of profits, there is some tax, but in effect the uh, tax at a normal or a subnormal level is zero for all practical purposes. The reason is that with this proposal, a corporation can 
do what's called expensing its capital expenditures, which means it can deduct them in the in the actual year of purchase. And that means that, in effect, the the effective tax rate on capital, which is people receive in terms of rent, interest, dividends, uh, is zero. So the the it, it's similar to a value-added tax in that respect. There's an effective zero tax on capital. And, in fact, even worse in this kind of situation, if you have corporations that operate at a loss, they have an incentive to merge with other firms because it can reduce their the tax liability of a firm that's in the profit side of the equation. As originally proposed, which is not a, a crazy idea, but it's something I wasn't particularly pleased with uh, as a proposal, this w- what I have called a, a limited tax on corporate profits for firms that business that sell into the U.S. and plus the uh, sales tax on imports. The sales tax would be felt most acutely by the big retailers, Target, Walmart, etc., because of course they imported a lot of consumer goods. Plus, uh, as it turns out, the petrochemical industry, featuring the famous Coke interests, so they all had uh, an interest in fighting like hell against this border tax. And in fact, they formed assorted astroturf groups to do that. And as of now, it looks like, at least for the time being, they've succeeded because uh, Trump has said uh, he doesn't like the tax anymore. What about the more conventional Republican approach of just cutting taxes on uh, rich people? Well, that you would expect them to be able to agree on something like that, but that's why I said the question there is going to be how much of a constraint the implied increase in uh, the deficit or the debt might be. There's certain obvious things you know they would like to do. They'd like to get rid of the state and gift tax. They'd like to eliminate the alternative minimum tax, which is a way to tax very wealthy people who have lots of deductions who otherwise escape tax. They would like to reduce the top rates. Whether they will go ahead and do that is uh, depends on uh, their ability to offset it some other way. The one dangerous possibility, which I think people have been neglecting a little bit, is that they would use a cut at uh, the Medicaid program to finance tax cuts for wealthy people. There have been schemes about that would, in fact, cut Medicaid by uh, changing the way the grant works, which uh, were going to be part of the murder of Obamacare. Obamacare seems to be holding up, but whether uh, I'm not convinced that the scheming to uh, hurt Medicaid is is past us, though. Uh, Gives new meaning to the death panels. Um, Mnuchin seems to think that they can get this all done by uh, the end of the summer, I think he was saying. Uh, is he dreaming? Well, it seems increasingly unlikely. It, it's not just, you know, even if they were a unified group, the Ryan Caucus, there's a lot of uh, heavy lifting just in terms of technical work and consensus building. The fact that they have uh, fairly deep disagreements about basic values makes it much more difficult. So at this point, it's, it's uh, if we... Uh, if you watch the, uh, the market, it seems like the the increase after the election still reflects the belief that something will come down in that of that type. But you know the market still kept uh, up, so somebody at least thinks that something may happen. What you what you want to make of that is up to you. That was Max Sawicki, a Virginia-based economist and writer. Yes, the stock market powered higher after Trump's election on dreams of tax cuts and deregulation which is about all that American elites care passionately about these days. The market has been wobbling lately as the confusion and incompetence of the Trump gang and congressional Republicans becomes ever clearer, but as they say, hope dies last. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
Oh, Some of Return by Brian Eno and Carl Hyde from their 2014 collaboration, High Life. Syria, what a damn mess. The analyses of that situation seem unusually shallow, reducing to an evil madman hypothesis, with history and politics largely absent. A number of my friends on the left have been jumping up and down, screaming, we must do something, with hardly any ideas of what that something might be. And then Donald Trump launches a cruise missile attack and suddenly gets pronounced presidential by opinion leaders. What's it all mean? Here's Vijay Prashad with a far more serious approach. He holds the George and Martha Kellner Chair in South Asian History and is a professor of international studies at Trinity College, Hartford. His latest of many books is The Death of the Nation and the Future of the Arab Revolution from the University of California Press. Vijay Prashad. Welcome, Vijay. We learned from uh, Press Secretary Sean Spicer the other day that uh, Assad is actually worse than Hitler. Um, How do you judge this rhetoric around uh, Syria? Well, firstly, it's got to be said that Sean Spicer is uh, not, not the best advocate for any political position because then he went on to say that Hitler didn't use chemical weapons against his own people, uh, which is a curious standard since, I mean, even elementary school children in the United States know something of the Holocaust. And also that the United States not only used two nuclear weapons in World War II, at the end of World War II, but also has been using depleted uranium in Syria. So the standard that they've set for what is worse or better than Hitler (laughs) doesn't seem to me to be a very plausible standard. Uh, On the other hand, yes, there is this great, let's say, you know, um, exaggeration uh, of the situation. You know, the situation is appalling in Libya, I mean, in in Syria. Um, Half the population has been displaced, over half a million dead. You know, it's, it's not a very... Uh, uh, easy situation to describe because the, the conditions are so poor. But the conditions are poor in very many parts of the world, including in Iraq, which was destroyed by the illegal U.S. invasion. Perhaps over a million people killed, very large displacement and sectarian displacement in that country. Um, still a great turmoil in several districts in northern Iraq. So, you know, the tragedies are spread uh, quite deep and thin at the same time. And Assad is not the author of all of them. You know, however uh, reprehensible his actions are within his country, he is certainly not, uh, you know, responsible for all the tragedies, not only in the region, but elsewhere in the world. So this exaggeration of the role of Assad, I think it uh, produces the ability uh, for people to cover over other authors of this and, and similar tragedies. So what is your explanation of how Syria got to this point? We hear lots of you know, competing explanations. You know, people blame just the monstrosity of Assad uh, or you know, the jihadists uh, flowing in from abroad. Uh, what, what's your analysis? Well, you know, history doesn't happen just because one person has either a personality defect or some a marvelous personality. You know, after all, when President Obama was elected, there was the anticipation that his personality is great and he's going to save the day. You know, but just because you have a good personality or a bad personality or a murderous personality, that's hardly sufficient uh, to understand uh, human history. You know, it might tell you a few things, but it doesn't explain everything. But to understand what has happened to Syria, I think one both has to go back in time a little bit and to broaden uh, you know, the lens a little bit. It's not merely a story of Syria. So to go back in time, you know, when uh, Mr. Assad came to power after the death of his father, um, when he came to power in Syria, he pursued an agenda which was very common across the global south. And that is the the policy slate uh, that we know as neoliberalism. And what Mr. Assad did was he basically opened up the economy. And at the time, uh, the most aggressive, uh, you know, regional capitalist power that saw enormous advantages in Syria was Turkey. And so Turkish capital, uh, both real estate uh, investment and, uh, you know, uh, sale of of, uh, consumer goods, all kinds of consumer goods, from biscuits on the one side to plastic buckets on the other. You know, just as in the American marketplace, it's Chinese-made goods that seems to, uh, you know, 
uh, attract our attention. In the same way in Syria, in the 2000s, it was Turkish goods. You know, all basic commodities were coming into the country from Turkey. Of course, this had an effect on small manufacturing in Syria. Uh, it displaced a number of, of firms. And then this aggressive real estate capital that came in uh, displaced sections of the lower middle class. At the same time, just again, you know, Doug, as, as happened across the global south in the 90s and 2000s, there was a severe agricultural crisis. Smallholders were being displaced from their land. And some of this, again, was because of the rise in price of inputs uh, for agriculture, fertilizer, seeds, uh, pesticide, etc. The input prices went up. These were no longer subsidized. These goods were no longer produced domestically. They were being imported. And at the same time, of course, there was a major drought uh, in northern Syria. Now, this meant that over a million Syrian agriculturalists in a country of about 24, 25 million moved to the big cities uh, within four or five years. And, you know, they then swelled the slums of Aleppo, of Damascus, of Dara, of Hama, of the cities that go up and down western uh, of, uh, Syria. And in these slums, what they encountered was very interesting. You know, over the course of the past, you know, maybe two or three decades, uh, Saudi Arabia has become, uh, rather than Egypt, has become the font of education uh, for preachers in the region. So a very large number of Saudi-trained preachers uh, have entered into the slumlands and uh, developed small mosques. And it's here that the kind of cultural preparation for the nature of the rebellion uh, took place. And absent any left formation, when discontent uh, started brewing, the discontent couldn't brew through trade unions or left parties. These had largely been dismantled. So what happens, as has, as has happened in Egypt, as has happened in Algeria in an earlier period, the discontent uh, came in through the uh, lens of the Saudi preachers. So in other words, you know, what one began to see is the Islamization of radicalism. You know, where revolt was to emerge, it would emerge in the colors of Islam. And that's not just any Islam, but this very specific kind of Islam, and which is why it was so easy for extremist uh, organizations to take hold of discontent. And then eventually, of course, uh, as has become now a cliche, uh, they invited uh, people from around the world to join them. So, you know, it's not a question of merely Asad bad, somebody good. You know, these are silly ways of looking at the Syrian question. One has to look at it in a kind of more material way, understand the shifts that have taken place in Syria, the kind of new social conditions that have been produced. And, you know, when rebellions take place, they don't necessarily happen in a way that one wants, uh, you know, but they happen nonetheless. And this particular rebellion, uh, you know, came at a time when a lot of regional powers wanted to weaken Syria. And that was the perfect storm. I want to get back to Syria in a moment, but let's take a little detour into Saudi Arabia. Uh, you mentioned its role in uh, spreading a very uh, radical and often violent uh, version of Islam into Syria, but they, they do this around the world, right? The Saudis, who are the great allies of Washington uh, and recipient of um, many arms from Washington, um, are also spreading the kind of ideology that we uh, profess to be at war with. Um, how, do, how do you explain this? This takes us back to the 1960s, you know, when in the Arab world in particular, uh, there was the emergence of uh, third world nationalism, secular nationalism, republicanism in the old sense, you know, where Gamal Abdul Nasser in 1952, when they conducted the coup in Egypt and took power, extraordinarily popular figure in the Arab world, including in Saudi Arabia. See, they were a direct threat uh, to Saudi Arabia's claim that a Muslim society should be ruled by a monarch, uh, which is the only uh, justification for the, the uh, Saudi regime's legitimacy. You know, they make the claim consistently that Muslim societies are best governed by a monarch, and in this case, the monarch is also the so-called custodian of the two holy cities of Mecca and Medina. So uh, at that time, afraid, terribly afraid of the rise of 
this third world nationalism and specifically Nasserism, you know, the, the, the kind of role of Nasser in the region, Saudi Arabia uh, organized with great encouragement from the Central Intelligence Agency uh, a, a worldwide group called the World Muslim League. And backing the World Muslim League in the 1960s was Morocco, which is Saudi Arabia's closest ally in the region, very close ally. In fact, the kings of Saudi Arabia, uh, they go for vacations in Morocco. There was an enormous palace in Morocco. They vacationed there. So Morocco backed this immediately. The CIA, as I said, was really there from the inception. And then Pakistan plays an important role. Uh, so these three countries became the uh, essentially the kind of uh, coordinators of the World Muslim League. And what they did was they sent preachers around the world in the domains now not of the West. You know, they didn't uh, target Muslims in Europe and the United States, etc. No, their main target was to counter Nasserism. So they sent their preachers to, you know, Algeria, to Libya, uh, to uh, Syria, etc., and to the zones. And this is, of course, with great uh, courage that some of these preachers went, but to the zones of the Soviet Union. So into Soviet Central Asia, into Dagestan and Chechnya, you know, and, of course, into, very interestingly, they also found their way to the Philippines. Now, if you look at the geography, Doug, of the spread of the World Muslim League, whether it's around the Arab world or into Soviet Central Asia, you know, 25 years later, this work begins to bear fruit when it is from exactly these geographical locations that men will come uh, to Afghanistan, to Pakistan and Afghanistan, uh, to fight against the Soviet Union in the 1980s. In other words, the, uh, the World Muslim League uh, prepared a generation of Muslim men uh, with a certain ideological outlook. And then they became militarized. They weaponized Islam. They militarized their, their experience. You know, it went from study groups now to uh, guerrilla warfare. And then they all went home and became leaders of the various branches of whether it's Al-Qaeda or some kind of, uh, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda-type group. You know, the leaders of these groups in Libya, to the Philippines, all cut their teeth in Afghanistan. And then these people, in turn, produced local variants of this sort of militarized Saudi uh, ideology, which then returns in a third generation and a fourth generation uh, to ISIS uh, in Syria. You know, so this process, it, it's not merely about what the Saudis are doing now, but this has been a long-term process of preparation, uh, which was hastened and deepened after the Iranian Revolution. Because the Iranian Revolution, just like Nasserism, directly threatened the legitimacy of Saudi Arabia because what united Nasserism, which was this secular Republican uh, type of nationalism with Iran, is Iran is a Republican Islam. You know, it is a republic. It is not a monarchy. So both uh, Nasserism and the Iranian Republic uh, threatened the idea that Muslim societies need kings. And so after 1979, this deepened uh, the kind of paranoia from Saudi Arabia, and they began to crank the gears much, much faster to you know, hasten the outcomes of this process which they had started in the 1960s. I'm speaking with Vijay Prashad, professor of history at Trinity College, Hartford. You outline a really long-term uh, story about the Saudis and uh, their machinations uh, in spreading this kind of version of Islam that they, uh, they're associated with, but um, they still continue to do it in the present, and the United States government doesn't really seem to care very much, despite having uh, all this uh, rhetorical and military energy directed against um, the perpetrators of this ideology on the ground. How do you explain the U.S. attitude towards Saudi Arabia and its tolerance of this, uh, these activities? Tolerance might be too weak a word for this. Uh, so, you know, one of the conventional arguments on the left is that uh, the, let's just use the term, tolerance of Saudi Arabia has to do with oil. And I think this is a very weak argument, uh, largely because, you know, yes, it's true, of course, Saudi Arabia has enormous reserves. Uh, Saudi Arabia's ability to pump uh, oil out of the ground, uh, you know, uh, uh, suppresses the price of oil, of course, to its detriment, but forget about that. 
But I think the question of oil is not the only one on the table. I think there's something underneath that that's, that's important, which is the political role that Saudi Arabia plays uh, in the region and in the so-called world of Islam. Uh, so what is the political role? Firstly, Saudi Arabia is generally uh, quite in line. Its views are quite in line politically with those of the United States. You know, they don't want to see the rise of independent, strong uh, nationalist powers uh, in any part of that region. They would prefer to see weak states. They don't want to see uh, the rise of left-wing governments. You know, neither of them sees that as appealing. This is a complete unanimity of opinion on these two things. And then, you know, on the other side of it, uh, over the course of the last several decades, the United States intelligence services has come to rely not wholly, but uh, quite considerably on the intelligence services of Saudi Arabia and the Israelis uh, in West Asia, and for the Saudis, of course, across the so-called Muslim world. So, you know, how do we know that? Well, let's just take uh, what's in the public domain. Uh, don't have to agree, accept anonymous people that one talks to, but take what's in the public domain. If you read the WikiLeaks cables, for instance, uh, that come from various embassies. If you just concentrate on the Syria cables, the one that leaves Damascus, what you find is quite interesting is that at crucial moments, the political officer writing to uh, you know other embassies and to Washington says things like, you know, our Saudi counterpart told us this. Or there's one cable which I find most disturbing, uh, which comes uh, in 2006. And in that cable, the political officer says, that, you know, the Saudis uh, and the Egyptian intelligence basically uh, understand Iran uh, trying to proselytize in Damascus. And we sort of know this is not true, but we should go along with it because this is something that, uh, you know, there's a political game in us going along with Egyptian intelligence and Saudi intelligence. So, there's a, you know, there's a considerable uh, political unanimity of views uh, between the United States and Saudi Arabia, as well as Israel, uh, for this region, but with Saudi Arabia for the Islamic world in general. And I think uh, much more specifically, uh, there is a uh, use that the United States uh, makes of the intelligence agencies of Saudi Arabia and Egypt. You've got to remember that U.S. human intelligence gathering uh, in this region is almost nil. Uh, just as in uh, Pakistan, U.S. human intelligence is virtually nil. It basically relies on the Pakistani intelligence services to tell it, tell it what's going on. What the United States is good at is signals intelligence, you know, metadata analysis of phone calls, uh, you know, being able to actually listen in on phone calls, things like that. That's what the United States is good at. So for human intelligence, it relies on the Saudis. You know, I mean, I understand liberals will hear stories about, say, the way Saudis execute people or women can't drive. But the hardened, um, you know, uh, kind of empire-first warriors in Washington, D.C., they understand that this alliance with Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, there's, there's something that they're getting out of it. Okay, now back to Syria. The rebellion first, I guess, took off uh, during the era of the Arab Spring, which now seems like a long time ago and a more innocent time. How do you account for the evolution of that, that rebellion into the bloody affair it's become? I've talked to a lot of people who were involved in the opening year, months of that rebellion. Uh, I've interviewed people who funded the rebellion uh, in its first couple of years. Uh, and the story that I got from them was that, well, yes, of course, there were very genuine rebellions or, or openings uh, right after the Arab Spring, inspired by the Arab Spring. Uh, people went out and used the same slogans and such like. But, uh, you know... Uh, most of the people who were involved in the civic rebellion, uh, and this is an issue that uh, parallels that in Egypt, didn't have sufficient uh, base in the slum areas and in rural areas. In Egypt, Tahrir Square was filled with uh, a combination of people, uh, but uh, you know, some sections like the Muslim Brotherhood had some depth in rural Egypt, whereas even the left-wing groups in Tahrir Square had very little left-wing uh, uh, left uh, connections into the countryside. So in Syria, it was much the same, in fact, deeper, uh, that in the 
at some areas, there was very little connection between the civic, uh, you know, rebels and, let's say, uh, the slumlands or the rural areas. There's very little connection between even the organized uh, left groups, small groups that came onto the street and the slums, etc. So, you know, very quickly, the social question uh, overwhelmed the uprising, it, even before outside forces came in. Uh, those who have, uh, you know, uh, the kind of capacity to draw out the masses of people are going to define a rebellion. You know, re rebellions are not going to be defined uh, by the statement somebody makes in this era. You need to have some organized capacity to have to reach the masses and speak in a language people are willing to uh, uh, listen to. So that was the social thing. Then, you know, within maybe a month or so of the rebellion breaking out, uh, this advantage was seized uh, by Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, UAE, individual sheikhs in many instances, and the United States. And, you know, people say, well, why didn't the UN intervene? The uh, United States intervene. The United States intervened from the beginning. I mean, th there was an incident where the U.S. ambassador, Robert Ford, went to a, a town and basically stood there saying, I, we are with the rebellion. I mean, just imagine, uh, Doug, in, in New York City at Occupy Wall Street, imagine if the Cuban ambassador had gone there and said, uh, I am with the, the rebels at Occupy Wall Street, and I, we, we should bring down the U.S. government. I mean, <laughs> imagine if that had been uh, something that had taken place. You know, would the United States have tolerated that? They would have immediately expelled the ambassador. So the U.S. ambassador was out there, and what this said to people was, just when the U.S. was, you know, through NATO was bombing Libya, was that if we continue our rebellion, the United States is going to save us. You know, let's explore that for a second. You are out there in Libya, uh, where there was a, a rebellion in Benghazi, and then all kinds of groups come in, the Qataris come in there, the Turks as well, you know, come in to back one side against Gaddafi, um, and the Americans uh, and the French come and bomb Gaddafi to smithereens and basically donate the country uh, to these sections. Well, why didn't they do this in Syria, especially since they seem to promise to people whether they do that? This, of course, intensified the rebellion. And even if the people didn't have the capacity to actually overthrow the government, they were waiting for American planes. And I think here, uh, yes, uh, you know, people in the region uh, are responsible for the massive loss of life, the Assad government is responsible, but so is the United States, because it egged on a rebellion, uh, which, it, which it didn't uh, want to participate in at the, re at the uh, scale at which people thought uh, this uh, backing was going to come. Very similar to George H.W. Bush, who in 1991 called upon uh, the populations in the south of Iraq to rise up, you know, the so-called uh, marshland populations. They rose up, expecting U.S. Air Force, and they were crushed by the Iraqi government's forces. So there was this. Now, this money that comes in from the Turks and others, uh, this is what then inks and defines the rebellion um, from just about the early fall of 2011 uh, to the present. You know, the civic rebellion was suffocated uh, within a month or so. And the rebellion that then uh, defined the, the Syrian version of the Arab Spring was always a regional war. I'm speaking with Vijay Prashad, professor of history at Trinity College, Hartford. Okay, now we get to the present uh, and uh, Donald Trump. Um, uh, well, the gas attack and then Donald Trump. The gas attack, of course, is assumed uh, almost universally to have been engineered by Assad. Uh, if you question that, you're, you're considered an apologist for Assad and, uh, of course, Putin as well. Uh, what's your analysis of what happened with that attack, uh, and what would uh, Assad benefit by having gassed a, a, a region of, of no particular strategic significance? This is a very strange situation. Let's first say that there was some kind of attack in Idlib. 60-odd uh, people died, and it was a terrible attack. There is an interesting standard that has developed, that when... People are killed in a conventional attack. This is not going to raise an eyebrow. But somehow, when you can raise an attack to the level of chemical weapons, there is universal outrage. 
the reason I say this is just a week before uh, this chemical attack in Idlib or whatever this was in Idlib, um, the United States sort of half, half-heartedly took um, uh, responsibility for a bombing in Mosul in Iraq, which killed perhaps 200 people, maybe. Uh, let's even say 100 people were only killed. Most of these were civilians. And so at that time, there was some muted outrage. Uh, you know, this was reported, but there was no universal anger. And my feeling with this is that, you know, we have to recognize that there is a double standard operating in the world. When the United States kills civilians uh, with massive bombardment, it's always seen as accidental. You know, the United States never intends to kill civilians. When, uh, you know, some oriental despot uh, kills civilians, that is an outrage, and it was deliberate. And I find this distinction, you know, I'm not justifying anybody killing anyone, but I just think the way in which we make this distinction has enormous policy implications. Because what this means is when the United States uh, kills civilians in very large numbers and with grotesque armaments, there is no call in the UN Security Council for any kind of uh, retribution. Uh, or when U.S. allies kill civilians, such as Israel against Gaza most recently in 2014, there's no call in the Security Council for retaliation, no-fly zones, etc. But when a so-called oriental despot does it, there's universal outrage. And it is used in interesting ways either to cover over um, the war crimes conducted by the West or somehow to make people of the West feel better about themselves. Because, you know, after all, they must do something to help the hapless people in Syria uh, from their despots. And I think there's, a, there's something that, you know, at this sort of meta level that needs deliberation before we get to the basic facts, which in this case are not easy to uh, grasp. You know, what happened in Idlib? Uh, why hasn't there been an investigation uh, why uh, even the fact-finding mission from the United Nations, why is that having a hard time getting there? Uh, let me back up a little bit and say, why is it that reporters from Western uh, publications, let's say the New York Times, Washington Post, etc., why is it that these reporters feel much more comfortable going to the government parts of Syria but don't go uh, to the rebel-held parts of Syria? You know, why is it that they rely on stringers, uh, and of course, also in many cases, people who are part of that form of the rebellion. What is going on here? Why haven't our reporters decided to go to the rebel parts if indeed they are uh, you know, safe and, and, and not barbaric? So what I'm just trying to say is there's no investigation based on uh, the you know, very sort of uh, uneven facts that have emerged. Uh, the Trump administration decides to bomb at huge cost, you know, at the cost of over a million, hundred million dollars. Um, he sends 59, maybe 60 cruise missiles uh, to an air base. Now, we, you know, we began with Sean Spicer. Spicer says, knocked out 20% of the fixed-wing aircraft, knocked out this, hit the, you know, uh, uh, oil supply. I mean, this is what one side is saying, other side is showed well, we can take off from the airfield within 24 hours. And it appears that it's going to strengthen uh, the Russian uh, you know, air defenses. They are going to send new air defense mechanisms into Syria. At the same time, the Russians are saying that the Americans fired 59 cruise missiles, but only 23-odd landed in, in Syria. That is, um, over half of them uh, had been disabled in the air, uh, the air defense system. It's not only that we don't know exactly what happened outside Idlib, but we don't even know what happened with that strike on the Air Force. There is so much propaganda. We are in such thick fog of propaganda that people who claim certainty uh, you know, need to really check themselves and to uh, think seriously about the sources of information and not just their own moral outrage. The Trump attack did win him some friends uh, on MS MSNBC, however. I mean, we've got Democrats now saying that this is when he finally became president and things like that. Uh, so, you know, you almost think there was a, a domestic angle to uh, the attack as well as a foreign policy angle. Isn't there always? Bill Clinton was the master of this with cruise missiles. Anytime he found his domestic numbers dropping or the Monica Lewinsky issue, uh, you know, heating up, 
Uh, he fired cruise missiles at Sudan. He fired cruise missiles at uh, Afghanistan. You know, these places became a way for him to displace his anger and appear, as you say, presidential. I mean, it's a curious thing that until Donald Trump fired these cruise missiles into Syria, everybody thought he was a wretched man. The moment he fired these cruise missiles, everybody, you know, these kind of everybody uh, began to say, well, he's presidential. It's a very interesting uh, statement, nothing to do with Syria, but it's a very interesting statement about the nature of American liberalism, which has become, I think, blinded by uh, the magic of warfare and this belief that if, uh, if a president conducts a military action, they are absolved of everything else. We saw this before with George W. Bush. You know, until 9-11, George W. Bush was seen as a hapless fool. When uh, at 9-11, he stood there with that, you know, megaphone, said, we're going to go after them, started the war in Afghanistan. For a very long time, uh, liberals said, well, this is the correct measured response, etc. It was only when stories came of, of torture, uh, of the black sides, that uh, liberals began to sour of that presidential man, who, by the way, that souring seems to me was very light because now he's back in as an acceptable person, you know, uh, a painter of wet veterans, etc. Uh, for a while, seen as a kind of even moderate compared to Trump. There's a very bizarre kind of, um, you know, fascination, let's say, or, or romance of militarism inside American liberalism. I think people like Brian Williams need to, you know, remember Brian Williams made up a story that when he was in Iraq, he was in a helicopter and they took fire. And he said this, you know, to basically uh, dramatize his own position. It turned out, of course, there was no firing at the helicopter. And he was then removed from, M from NBC. There was also a story of Hillary Clinton uh, arriving at an airport under fire. This was in Yugoslavia. And it turns out, well, there was no fire there. You know, this militarized liberal likes to see itself in combat. Uh, has a fascination and romance of combat. This is something that American liberalism really needs to think about and introspect over. Okay, finally, we've heard a lot of people, you know, uh, Trump, I think, was partly pressed into action, or uh, who knows what else, but, uh, you know, the, all these Democrats and liberals are saying, we must do something for the suffering of the Syrian people. We even see uh, some of my Trotskyist friends uh, making sounds like that, although they claim not to be supporting U.S. military intervention. Uh, I, I don't know precisely what they uh, are st advocating in its stead, but uh, there's this, this pressure to act, to do something to save uh, Syrians. Is there anything that Americans can do in this situation? Well, you know, one of the big uh, issues that should be on the table for all people in America is the question of arms sales. Is it really the case that uh, the Saudis have ruined the Middle East, or is it the case that arms dealers have ruined the Middle East? You know, uh, here's the United States in the middle of Saudi Arabia's wretched bombing of, of Yemen, continuing to resupply Saudi Arabia. You know, I, I think that's just a scandal. Um, you know, then let's take the case of other countries. You know, here is Egypt, uh, relentless against uh, its people, this government of Mr. Sisi. And yet the United States continues to uh, sell arms to, uh, to the Egyptian army. I mean, if there is something, if people really want to do something, uh, they should stop arms going into the Middle East, and they should welcome refugees coming from the Middle East. Until things stabilize, I think a refugee policy is a very humane policy. Bombing a country is not going to bring peace. It's going to bring much more chaos. Why not stop arms sales? That's a very coherent and noble agenda item. I'm, I marvel at people on the left who celebrated uh, Trump's uh, you know, uh, uh, military action in Syria. It's very easy to sit on a computer somewhere and celebrate military action against another country. That bombing itself killed about six civilians. Uh, what will you say to them? Why not spend your energy trying to stop this massive arms economy, uh, this country reliant on arms sales, and at the same time uh, fight dearly uh, to open the doors to refugees? I think uh, those are the two humane, uh, genuinely left uh, political standards that people, I think, of a broad uh, section can rally around. That was Vijay Prashad. He's a professor of history and international relations at Trinity College, Hartford. His latest book is The Death of the Nation and the Future of the Arab Revolution from the University of California Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. 
Let's go with this, some of St. Elmo's Fire, a Brian Eno song performed by Ui Lab, a collaboration between the New York-based electronic band Ui and the Marxist Europopster Stereolab from about 20 years ago. Till next week, bye. <laughs>